September. As the summer season transitions into fall, it's important to note that the ninth month of the year is not just for football or the start of school. It's also a month to raise awareness of suicide prevention and recovery. Both are already long-standing issues in our society, especially here in New Mexico. Coupled with the pandemics of COVID-19 and racism, hard feelings and thoughts can balloon. Left unattended or unnoticed, these issues lead to tragedy. But can we stop those tragedies before they happen? I can't say for sure that tragedy is prevented entirely by talking things out, but I do know that it helps. It helps me even as I'm making this show each week. Today we talk with counselors, therapists, and people looking to help. An open ear willing to hear about your problems and help you work through them. Because the world as it is today demands flexibility, and it's tough to adjust to what you can't see. While the phrase adjusting to the new normal has been repeated endlessly since March, it's easier said than done. How do you adjust to an ever-changing situation where the quote, new normal, is indefinite uncertainty. You'll hear more about that in just a second. And remember that September is Suicide Awareness Month. We talk about it on the show today. We have some resources throughout the episode if these conversations are difficult for you to sit with. Tara Haley is a science journalist. For the publication Elemental, she wrote an essay on dealing with a long-term crisis called Your Surge Capacity is Depleted, It's Why You Feel Awful. The article's about what we're experiencing as this wears on, and it has tips on how to hang in there. Tara was kind enough to record herself reading excerpts of the article for this episode, and we've threaded those throughout the hour today. It was the end of the world as we knew it, and I felt fine. That's almost exactly what I told my psychiatrist at my March 16th appointment, a few days after our children's school district extended spring break because of the coronavirus. I said the same at my April 27th appointment, several weeks after our state's stay-at-home order. Yes, it was exhausting having a kindergartner and fourth grader doing impromptu distance learning while I was barely keeping up with work. And it was frustrating to be stuck home nonstop, scrambling to get in grocery delivery orders before slots filled up and tracking down toilet paper. But I was still doing well because I thrive in high stress emergency situations. It's exhilarating for my ADHD brain. Now we were in a pandemic and I'm a science journalist who has written about infectious disease and medical research for nearly a decade. I was on fire cracking out stories, explaining epidemiological concepts in my social networks, trying to help everyone around me make sense of the frightening circumstances of a pandemic and the anxieties surrounding the virus. I knew it wouldn't last. It never does. But even knowing I would eventually crash, I didn't appreciate how hard the crash would be or how long it would last or how hard it would be to try to get back up over and over again, or what getting up even looked like. In those early months, I, along with most of the rest of the country, was using surge capacity to operate, as Anne Mastin calls it. She's a PhD, a psychologist, and a professor of child development at the University of Minnesota. Surge capacity is a collection of adaptive systems, mental and physical, that humans draw on for short-term survival in acutely stressful situations, such as natural disasters. But natural disasters occur over a short period, even if recovery is long. Pandemics are different. The disaster itself stretches out 
indefinitely. Dr. Stephanie MacGyver is the counseling director for students at UNM and the founder of the New Mexico Black Mental Health Coalition. I spoke with her about how the reality we're living in is affecting our mental well-being. We pick up our conversation in progress. You know, and the one thing that I've always been marveling at in my work, and it's been present for me, I've been aware of this for decades, people don't have hobbies. Mm. Like people don't really think of themselves as multifaceted in what their contributions can be. Like we're, we train and we're on a track to offer one thing. And if it falls away, like, okay, what else is there? Like, what are, what are all your contributions and your passions, right? And we don't tend to think of those as viable to contribute, yeah. you know, but there are a lot of people now who are discovering, you know what, I love to bake bread. Now they're realizing, okay, yeah, maybe that is my contribution. Maybe the new life that's developing from this has more of that in it. Yeah. So it is forcing us to reexamine that. How many facets are there for mm-hmm. us? And I think that's about time when I talk to people about their lives and how they identify and how they describe themselves. We're trained to be so unidimensional yep. and that's problematic. So that is one of the benefits of this time, I think. I think there are many. Mm-hmm. I don't think they will come into focus until we're well out of it. Correct. And that's something that I hope for. Like I've been saying to people, just because these horrific events are going on, I'm not going to think that life is not beautiful. I thought right. I thought life was a beautiful experience, good or bad, before this. And now mm-hmm. it's, it's reaffirmed that belief within myself. Right. And that we actually now are given more time to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month and Recovery Awareness Month. Why is it important to bring these causes to the national dialogue, particularly in the middle of COVID-19 and a racial justice awakening? We've been aware for years about the crisis of suicidality in the American public. We could probably say it was first brought to the fore, real public consciousness with veterans. Mm-hmm. And so there has been a lot of research and a lot of focused attention on that. And then the next wave was actually in black people. We started seeing this escalation in suicidality, especially among black youth, which was a, a group that we'd not seen that number of suicides in and increasing so precipitously as it has over the last 10 years. We already were aware that this is a problem in our society and we're hypothesizing about why that might be. And then the pandemic hit and the people that had been doing this work realized, oh, you know what, this is going to exacerbate that already existing problem of people who are feeling that life is hopeless with now being isolated and therefore without social support and then feeling the traumatization from witnessing all of these things that are happening in society. You know, we're kind of exposed to media 24-7 now. And so the constant barrage of negativity seems to be exacerbating this sense of hopelessness that people have about just what you were talking about earlier. You know, kind 
kind of the, the brightness of life mm-hmm. and the fact that there is still joy and value to be had. And so these pandemics that we're experiencing, and we consider there to be two, the COVID-19 pandemic, but also the racism pandemic, is creating, I think, a greater sense among more people, this sense of hopelessness. And hopelessness is that factor that we get very concerned about. The fight for racial justice and equality, it's already a mountain of despair and stress for everyone involved. Everyone involved. I don't care what side you're on. You're definitely going through stress and despair. Some people are expressing that that dread and despair, and it takes a lot of energy to fight for this justice. What are things that people can do? What What are tools that they could acquire to help them replenish or maintain their energy as they're going about this fight? I've heard it from a lot of sides, like we're still in this place dealing with racial injustices. No, we're in a a further place Mm -hmm. dealing with racial injustice. The difference being now is that we are sort of acquiring, collecting more allies who are more aware than ever before in our American history Mm -hmm. about these issues. And so just today I was on campus and there's a staff newsletter that goes out and there was just the most beautiful submission that was made by a staff member on the North Campus about her allyship as a white woman, and it just brought me to tears. So the number of allies who are present and active and engaged is more and different than at any point in our past far more informed, far more engaged. But while we're highly sensitized to these issues and traumatized even by these issues, we cannot immerse ourselves in it for a prolonged period of time and think that we can stay healthy and whole. Mm -hmm. One cannot continue to run a marathon indefinitely. So I often talk with people about this as a relay. You have to pass the baton, right? You gotta go take a rest and let someone else do some of this heavy lifting. And so I want people who are really engaged and really feeling sensitized about it and traumatized around it. Number one, to recognize your allies, find your allies. Let them do the work. There's work for the allies that people of color can't do. Hmm. And they're doing the work. And then the other part of our work is that we got to take a rest. we got to hand off the baton and know that it's okay. This is a relay, right? So then we can jump back in when we've had a rest, when we've rejuvenated, right? Yeah. And I've seen people draw out their lines in the sand in many cases, refuse to talk to others whose beliefs are different. I don't feel like that type of stance is going to be helpful for any of us. Yeah. And it's really hard. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It's very hard. I mean, so what can we do as individuals to bring ourselves to open up consideration of dialogue with those who have a different belief system than we do? I think it is difficult to connect with other people when that differing belief system is the focal point of the relationship. So if what we're relating around is that issue of conflict, then it is going to be hard to join, right? So there may be some agreements that we need to have with people in our life that we're not going to relate with each other around that issue, right? So we're going to find our other common ground, you know, that we like to bake bread or that we like to go walking in the woods and that's what we're going to do. And we are, in fact, going to intentionally not engage around those issues of conflict. I think there's ways that our media and our social media has sort of forced those contentious issues to be the primary issues that we relate now in the world with. And 
we need to take that back. You know, we're not going to let those be the primary variables that we know each other by. They've become primary identifiers now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. People didn't even know, yeah. you know, 30 years ago what party people were in. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what do you want people who are facing depression at this time during the pandemics? What do you want them to know? Number one, that help is available. Depression is treatable and depression does not have to be a chronic, increasingly more difficult and intractable illness. It can get better. It does require, though, reaching out for help. People who work in mental health, people who are providers, know how to work with depression, will not be surprised by anything that you say. I think one of the great values of psychotherapy that I see over and over again with people that I work with is the surprise among people that no matter what they say or bring to therapy is not met with judgment. It's not met with shock or surprise. It's a truly safe space to address whatever the distress is. And the therapist that you're working with and, and do ask your anybody you make contact with what's your experience working with depression, um, what might I expect if I come and work with you? You can interview them as much as they'll interview you. But also know that it is a confidential and safe space. Dr. Stephanie MacGyver, the Counseling Director for Student Health and Counseling at University of New Mexico, and she's also with the New Mexico Black Mental Health Coalition. I want to thank you. Every time I talk to you, I feel better. I know our listeners will. Thank you so much, Dr. MacGyver. You're welcome. I love talking to you, too, anytime. We're heading back now to Tara Haley talking about our surge capacity today. By my May 26th psychiatrist appointment, I wasn't doing so hot. I couldn't get any work done. I'd grown sick of Zoom meetups. It was exhausting and impossible to think with the kids around all day. I tried to conjure up the motivation to check email, outline a story, or review interview notes, but I couldn't focus. I couldn't make myself do anything. Work, housework, exercise, play with the kids for that whole week. Or the next, or the next, or the next. I know depression, but this wasn't quite that. It was, as I'd soon describe in an emotional post in a social media group of professional colleagues, an anxiety-tainted depression mixed with NUI that I couldn't kick, along with a complete inability to concentrate. I spoke with my therapist, tweaked medication dosages, went outside daily for fresh air and sunlight, tried to force myself to do some physical activity, and even gave myself permission to mope for a few weeks. We were in a pandemic after all, and I had already accepted in March that life would not be normal for at least a year or two. But I still couldn't work, couldn't focus, hadn't adjusted. Shouldn't I be used to this by now? Mastin asked me this, why do you think you should be used to this by now? We're all beginners at this. This is a once in a lifetime experience, she told me. It's expecting a lot to think we'd be managing this really well. It wasn't until my social media post elicited similar responses from dozens of high achieving, competent, impressive women that I professionally admire that I realized I wasn't in the minority. My experience was a universal and deeply human one. 
While the phrase adjusting to the new normal has been repeated endlessly since March, it's easier said than done. How do you adjust to an ever-changing situation where the quote, new normal, is indefinite uncertainty? Late last year, Najee Flowers, a lineman for UNM's football team, died by suicide after a battle with depression. His family is suing the university, the NCAA, and former head coach Bob Davey, who they say ignored Flowers' pleas for help and time off, forcing him to keep playing. They're represented by Ben Crump, the nationally known lawyer, who's also bringing cases forward on behalf of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. I spoke with Crump along with attorney Micah Hilaire, who is the lead attorney in the lawsuit. Attorney Crump, you take on these huge cases all around the country and many people reach out to your firm for representation. What made you choose to pick up this case in New Mexico? Quite frankly, you want to be able to help people who don't have a voice to be able to challenge the Goliath institutions. In the case of Nigel Flowers, when his father called, it was just heartbreaking when he relayed to me that the coaches knew about his mental issues that he were having to endure, but yet they disregarded his mental health because they said his only worth was him performing on that football field on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. When I think about the fact that you have a large percentage of African-Americans who are out here playing NCAA football, that Najee could be one of several. And so that's why I knew we had to get involved. It's a case that could have larger implications on the sport and society. Now, Micah, let me ask you, the complaint speaks to the severe head injury and brain trauma football players endure and the NCAA's obligation to protect them. Do you believe the NCAA is partly to blame for Flowers' death? Absolutely. What happened was, you know, Najee was failed all around. He was failed by the coaching staff, failed by the university, failed by the physicians who saw him, who didn't adequately prescribe the proper medication nor supervise him when giving him antidepressants, which when you're giving those antidepressants to adolescents, there needs to be close monitoring. Um, and in fact, those types of antidepressants increase suicidal ideation. And then you have the NCAA, which... You know, they have a contract with its players, and the NCAA was founded to protect athletes, and particularly Division One, Two, II, and Three athletes that play collegiate sports all across America. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, yes, everybody failed Najee in this instance. And as Attorney Crump stated, that's why this case is so very important, because while we are seeking justice for Najee, the greater implications and the greater impact of this case on athletes across America are going to be important. And as an ex-D1 athlete myself, you know, I'm actually really attuned to a lot of the emotional turmoil and the stress that goes with the physical component of being an athlete as well. And so when you have a full class of athletes or students, there needs to be heightened awareness. And then you tackle on head injuries with adolescents, it becomes more important that there are certain safeguards in place that are going to be followed by the coaching staff, physicians, and universities. Mm-hmm. One of the lesser discussed side effects of repeated brain trauma injuries is depression. And in an article in the student newspaper at UNM, the Daily Lobo, one of his friends says Flowers had been hurting for a long time. Can you show that he was experiencing symptoms of brain trauma from football? 
what we do know is that the early autopsy that was conducted, while they did not conclude that there were CTE, there were CTE findings. So what we are endeavoring to do is to be our own independent examiner to review Najee's brain tissue um, so we can have a conclusive finding. But what we do know at a minimum is that there were early signs of head trauma and irrespective of that, we do know that he had signs of depression. And so whatever the cause of the underlying uh, mental issue are, there still was not adequate supervision, care, attention to Najee in dealing with that symptomology. Mm-hmm. Now, for Attorney Crump, the complaint points out that Lobo football players who were white were given time off, but Flowers never was, even though he kept asking because of severe headaches from concussions, depression, and a shoulder injury. He was forced to play despite doctor's orders that he shouldn't. How does this happen? What is going on in UNN's program at this time to where players who are injured and doctors say that they shouldn't play are being forced or coerced into play from coaches? We want to examine whether there's a pattern in practice of racial discrimination or implicit bias mm-hmm. as it relates to the way Coach Bob Davey and his staff treated the minority players versus the white players. Mm-hmm. We know from his interaction, Najee Flowers' parents, that Coach Davey was less than engaging with them when they tried to inquire about what happened with Najee and why didn't they take his you know, mental challenges very seriously. And so that's something that we really want to look at. It really speaks to this larger notion that we will advance that it was about profit over safety. Seemed like their main concern was these athletes being able to get on that field and perform on Saturday so they could get wins so he can keep his job and apparently they can get more endorsements. Mm. So this comes down to something that I obviously challenge the American institutions of justice on a regular basis. And that is this notion of the marginalization of black and brown bodies Mm -hmm. in America. The fact that, you know, when you go back to slavery, you look at this notion that it's about these black bodies being used by the American institutions for the benefit, whether financial or otherwise, of a capitalistic society. Mm-hmm. And so Attorney Hilaire and Attorney Haggard will be doing the deep dives on every aspect of this case. But one of the things we all will be looking at is the racial components as it relates to the larger aspects of our society. We won't turn a blind eye and say that these African-American football players are not at least being confronted 
with racial dynamics of the past. Yeah, I understand that. Something just came out about the University of Iowa and their program and uh, the racial uh, dynamics, how that plays out. Now, let me ask you, uh, Attorney Mm -hmm. Hilaire, former head coach Bob Davey, he was previously called out for being bigoted and reckless with student health. He had to do some cultural sensitivity in a Title IX training in 2018. But five years earlier, anonymous players wrote a letter to UNM saying Davey had been violent with the player, used racial slurs and mistreated black players. Is the University of New Mexico complicit here in your view? Based upon our early investigation, we have confirmed that there are individual football players that do allege that there was desperate treatment between the African-American players and the non-African-American players with respect to Davies. And the allegations are very long against Davies. Now, what we're going to be doing, again, as Attorney Crump just stated, is looking into those allegations and seeing whether or not there is, in fact, a pattern in practice. And with respect to your question about the university, to the extent that Davies is the head football coach, um, you know, the buck stops with him. And the university, to the extent that they're aware of these other complaints, and we believe that they are, since they ratified Davies' conduct, then definitely Davies' conduct and the universities together are going to be complicit and produce liability in terms of us seeking justice for Najee in this case. Mm-hmm. You know, student football players, they've died by suicide all around the country, and there have been links to brain injury and trauma. Do you both plan to bring more of these cases against the NCAA and possibly the NFL? Our law firm has been looking at the concussion cases it is a real dynamic, and unfortunately, because many times young African-American men see this as one of their only ways out of an impoverished situation that they overwhelmingly play football and the abuse it has on their bodies, particularly their brain, is something that we are very much in tune to because we know that it has much larger impressions than they can realize as young people just trying to make it out of an improvised situation to help their families. So to answer your question, yes, I know a lot of the litigation has been concluded on the NFL aspect. Now everybody's looking at the NCAA. There's some litigation out there already that's going on with it. But it is an important important piece of litigation because these young people are going to continue to play football no matter what we do because a lot of them see it as their best way out. I won't say their only way out, but it's their best way out. This last question is for both of you. What do you hope comes out of this lawsuit against Davey, the UNM Regents, and the NCAA? On behalf of um, Najee's mother, who I've spoken to the most, Um, not wanting to lose sight of the fact that it's about Najee first. What she really wants is to, A, bring public attention to this important issue. I think that mental illness is the NCAA's kind of dirty secret. Mm -hmm. And we want more funding, attention, protocols, safeguards to be put in place to assist student-athletes, especially our African-American males, which are creating billions of dollars for universities and in particular with Najee's case you know there was a line item budget for mental health for University of New Mexico athletes that was basically just 
vetoed. Mm. And that's another thing we're going to be looking into the year before Najee committed suicide. And so funding is important. We also believe there should be a commission or a liaison, a group of, of individuals who can kind of be there as an independent body to assess and look into issues related to mental illness so that you don't have the coaches who have different motivations. You know, when you're trying to save your job, it's hard to be clear-headed in that regard. And knowing that, there needs to be something there to protect these very young adults because this really should not have happened. And everybody failed Najee in this regard. The crux of the matter is exactly what she's saying. We have to speak truth to power on issues that people don't want us to speak truth to power on issues that won't be popular by many football fans and American society itself. But because Najee Flower life matters, we have to do it. His mother and father are deserving of every consideration to know fully what happened to their son, why it happened, and those who are responsible for it happening should be held accountable. And this is because we want to prevent other parents, other families, other friends from having to endure the pain, the humiliation, and the tragedy of losing a young person who could have been saved. Mm-hmm. If they just would have cared, if they just would have listened, mm-hmm. he could have been saved. There's no reason for Najee Flowers not to be here. And for what? A football game? Mm-hmm. Is that the value of a black life? That you have to play this football game even if it costs you your life. That cannot be the message that we send to society. So I stand with Attorney Hilaire. I stand with Attorney Hilliard. I stand with the Flowers family and say in America, we can do better and we must do better. NCAA, we can do better and we must do better. University of New Mexico, we can do better and we must do better. That is attorney Benjamin Crump and attorney Micah Hilaire. They are representing the family of Najee Flowers. I want to thank you both for coming on to the show and I would love to talk with you more as the case goes further and we discover more about this case. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yes, my pleasure. If any of the conversations on this show today are surfacing sadness or anger and you need to talk to someone, call the warm line. People are ready to hear you even if you're not in crisis. That's why it's a warm line, not a hotline. Talk with someone by calling 1-855-466-7100. They're ready every day from 3.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m. I'm joined by Wendy Lennebrick Allison. She's a program manager at the Crisis and Access line slash warm line. Wendy, thanks for being with me. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here with you today. It's an honor. It's an honor to have you. And let me ask you, so you're running these hotlines in the warm line. Have you seen an increase in calls during the pandemic? When the pandemic first began, we actually saw a decrease in our call volume. 
you know, it was a relief for some people to step into the world of social distancing and to have a pause from their normal day-to-day activities. But as the pandemic continues on and the stressors of life continue and things begin happening within our community, mm-hmm. then we've actually seen our call volumes begin to move upwards. And in the month of July, we saw our call volume hit its highest mark that we had ever seen in the seven years that we've been answering the crisis line on behalf of the state of New Mexico. You all created a line just for hospital workers. Is that still operational and are you seeing it being used? The New Mexico Healthcare Worker and First Responder Support Line is still available for people to use. And it's not being as used as much as we would like it to be, I think. Just not enough people know about it. Mm. And oftentimes, people that work in those fields are the last ones to ask for help. And so they want you to know that we're here to hear you and that it's okay to call and it's private and confidential and you can be anonymous. Now, talk to me about the warm line. It's meant for people who aren't in crisis. What kinds of calls have you all been getting? So our crisis line is staffed with mental health professionals who all have a college degree. Our warm line is staffed with mental health professionals who went to the College of Hard Knocks and are in recovery themselves from their own mental health diagnosis Mm -hmm. and are certified professionals. Sometimes it really helps to talk to somebody who's been down a similar road and it feels like a safer space. Mm-hmm. You started a text helpline. Why would that be preferable sometimes as opposed to making a phone call and talking with someone? Sometimes people just aren't ready to have the conversation and they feel safer engaging in a text conversation where they can stop and pause. And in about a month, you'll be seeing our program actually rolling out a new service for a completely digital therapeutic programming called Five Actions hmm. that will offer people a way to watch some videos and think about how to help themselves through their next step. Are any of these going to be app-based where someone who may not have access to a laptop or a desktop can get these services through their phone? We are working to develop it to be app-based as well. We do actually have an app called NM Connect, which allows people to be able to access resources such as calling the crisis line or texting the crisis line, find a provider in your community. September is also Suicide Awareness Month, and during the pandemic, that is a very heavy consideration. Do you have advice for people who are experiencing this type of despair? Don't give up. There's always another tomorrow, and you never know what tomorrow will hold. If you just take one step forward and find a way to help yourself and connect with somebody else that can help you navigate through things, which could sometimes be giving us a call at the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line. She's Wendy Lindebrick Allison, Program Manager for the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line, also the Warm Line. I want to thank you very much for being on the show, and thank you for being there for New Mexicans. I really appreciate you. Thanks for having me today. In the next 30 minutes, we will hear from reporter Yasmin Khan about the concept of resilience. We talk with counselors at some of New Mexico's crisis and helplines, and we hear more about sustaining ourselves during a public health emergency that lasts months. It's Nomono, and we're talking about mental wellness this hour. Stay with us. No More Normal is brought to you by your New Mexico government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. After six months of pandemic in the U.S. now, how are you holding up? 
Science journalist Tara Haley is walking us through it, reading excerpts from the article published in mid-August. Over the next half hour, she'll have some tips for getting through this from psychologists she spoke with for her article. This is different from a hurricane or tornado where you can look outside and see the damage. The destruction is, for most people, invisible and ongoing. So many systems aren't working as they normally do right now, which means radical shifts in work, school, and home life that almost none of us have experience with. Even those who have worked in disaster recovery or served in the military are facing a different kind of uncertainty right now. Research on disaster and trauma focuses primarily on what's helpful for people during the recovery period. But we're not close to recovery yet. People can use their surge capacity for acute periods, but when dire circumstances drag on, Mastin says we have to find another way to cope. It's not surprising that as a lifelong overachiever, I felt particularly despondent and adrift as the months have dragged on, says Pauline Boss a PhD family therapist and professor emerita of social sciences at the University of Minnesota, who specializes in ambiguous loss. She says it's harder for high achievers and that the more accustomed you are to solving problems and getting things done, the harder it will be on you because none of that is possible right now. That mindset is an especially American one, Boss says, in a culture that is really solution oriented. It's a good way to think when it comes to putting a person on the moon or a rover on Mars, but it's destructive when we're faced with a problem without a solution. We have to reckon with what's called ambiguous loss. Any loss that's unclear and lacks a resolution. It can be physical, such as a missing person or the loss of a limb or organ, or psychological, such as a family member with dementia or a serious addiction. In this case, Boss says, it's a loss of a way of life, or maybe a loss of trust in the government, or a loss of freedom in moving around in our lives as we once did. It's not a death, but it's still a major loss, Boss says. Just as painful are losses that may result from the intersection of the pandemic and the already tense political division in the country. For many people, Issues related to COVID-19 have become the last straw in ending relationships. Whether it's a family member refusing to wear a mask, a friend promoting the latest conspiracy theory, or a coworker insisting COVID-19 deaths are exaggerated. Ambiguous loss elicits the same experiences of grief as a more tangible loss, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. But managing it often requires a bit of creativity. The New Mexico Crisis and Access Line is open all the time, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. The number is 1-855-NM-CRISIS or 1-855-662-7474. Kathleen Cool is a clinical specialist for the line and took some time to talk to me about the changes she's seen since the start of the pandemic. Have you seen the kinds of calls you receive change 
I have quite significantly. I've seen a change in call volume as well as people who have never experienced mental health concerns seem to now be recognizing some symptoms that might be related to anxiety or depression because of situational factors. Mm. in the country. Many of us have probably spoken with someone in crisis or near it in our lives. Aside from recommending a specialist or a professional, do you have any tips of how people can best help people they care about in those moments? Sure. I think that somebody is reaching out because they don't feel like anybody else might understand. So in that moment, you might be the only help they have. So really just letting them know, I hear you, can be so important for somebody in that moment. Yeah. You know, in times like this, some people rush to try to give advice. And I tend to sit in silence with them. Is that a way to show people that you absolutely hear them? I think so. It's okay to not know what to say. And I think they might be okay with even you saying that, you know, blatantly. I don't know what to say, Hmm. but I do hear that you're hurting. If I needed help, I don't think that I would expect somebody to know the exact phrasing or best advice, but just knowing that they're there for you. Mm -hmm. We saw a rush initially to respond to the pandemic, and even though it's ongoing, people are getting tired or frustrated or really burnt out. How can people keep working on a bad situation over a long period of time? I think utilizing coping skills and resources that we already know to work. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, but sometimes we have to amp up whatever it is that we normally do. Mm -hmm. If you seek a comfort through prayer or yoga or even just being alone, try to do more of it and prioritize yourself. Pencil yourself in a 30-minute bath once a week. Yeah. Or even if it's just 10 minutes, do what you can. Mm -hmm. And when we feel like we can't, maybe seeking some professional help. Do you all hear from frontline workers? What are they experiencing mental health-wise? People will call for a variety of reasons, but sometimes it's because of some trauma that they're experiencing vicariously. I think that they're really looking for somebody to hear them and validate them, and not necessarily a solution, because I think we all recognize that it's systemic, and the change really needs to happen as a community. Yeah. You know, finding representatives who will help fund some of these areas where we're really lacking. Mm-hmm. Now, when we think about this time, we're often thinking about physical danger and physical health. How important is the mental health side of this? Well, unfortunately, mental health care can become a physical safety concern. So we want to encourage people to notice a shift in how they're feeling. If they start to really notice behavioral patterns, lack of self-care, or maybe they're reaching for drugs and alcohol, or maybe they're reaching for food or different coping skills that might not be in their normal repertoire. Mm. We really want to encourage people to notice those things and talk about them. The more we talk about issues, especially things like suicidal thoughts, the less likely it is that we might act on those impulsively. Mm. So really noticing if those behavioral concerns are increasing or if those thoughts are becoming more specific or more frequent, that's really an indicator that you might need some help and so to call anytime. I want to thank you very much for your insight and thank you for the work that you're doing. She is Kathleen Cool, clinical specialist for crisis and access line here in the state of New Mexico. Thanks again, Kathleen. Thanks so much.
We've been hearing from science journalist Tara Haley about how the pandemic is different than other disasters because it lasts so long. Tara has some other helpful ideas about how to keep going. We couldn't fit them all in today, but we have links to her article in this post online at KUNM.org if you're looking for more. Here's Tara. I spoke with several doctors for this piece, Mastin and Boss, who I mentioned earlier, and also Michael Maddows, a professor of thoracic surgery and a motivational speaker. While there isn't a handbook for functioning during a pandemic, these doctors offered some wisdom for meandering our way through this. One, accept that life is different right now. It's a hard time, Maddow says, and we have to accept that in our bones and be okay with tough days. But that acceptance doesn't mean giving up. It means not resisting or fighting reality so that you can apply your energy elsewhere. Two, expect less from yourself. Most of us have heard for most of our lives to expect more from ourselves in some way or another. Now, we must give ourselves permission to do the opposite. We have to replenish more and ask, where do I get my energy? What kind of downtime do I need? It's a period of self-discovery. The malaise so many of us feel, a sort of disinterested boredom, is common in research on burnout, but other emotions accompany it. Disappointment, anger, grief, sadness, exhaustion, stress, fear, anxiety, and no one can function at full capacity with all that going on. Three, recognize the different aspects of grief. The familiar stages of grief don't actually occur in linear stages, Boss says, but denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance are all major concepts in facing loss. Plenty of people are in denial, denying the virus is real, or that the numbers of cases or deaths are as high as reported, or that masks really help reduce disease transmission. Anger is evident everywhere. Anger at those in denial, anger in the race demonstrations, Anger at those not physically distancing or wearing masks, and even anger at those who wear masks or require them. The bargaining is mostly with scientists. We hope we'll develop a vaccine quickly. Acceptance sometimes means saying, we're going to have a good time in spite of this. But it can also mean accepting that we cannot change the situation right now. Four, experiment with both and thinking. This approach may not work for everyone, but there's an alternative to binary thinking that many people find helpful in dealing with ambiguous loss, Boss says. Sometimes it means embracing a bit of the irrational. For the families of soldiers missing in action in Vietnam that Boss studied early in her career, or the family members of victims of plane crashes where the bodies aren't recovered, this type of thinking means thinking, he is both living and maybe not. She is probably dead, but maybe not. If you stay in the rational when nothing else is rational, like during the pandemic, then you'll just stress yourself more. Here's how Boss puts it. The situation is crazy, not the person. The situation is pathological, not the person.
We hear the word resilience thrown around a lot these days, but what does it really mean? Who has to be resilient and under what circumstances? Reporter Yasmin Khan talked to friends about the concept. My name is Samuel King. I am a kid. I'm an eighth grade kid. What are some of your thoughts on resilience and what it means during this time of like COVID and the BLM uprising and just trying to deal with school and all these restrictions and changes? How do you feel like resilience, the word resilience comes into play? I see it used, in my opinion, wrong a lot. I don't think resilience is accomplishing something with the lack of basic human needs. I think it should be doing a challenge that not a lot of people have been able to accomplish under hard circumstances, but not under unfair circumstances. So what are some of the unfair circumstances you're thinking about? Lack of food, lack of things he needs to survive, and also lack of family. Well, resilience is also based on your goal. If you're trying to get into Harvard, but she also grew up with a family household earning like 20000 a year, that's going to be a lot different from somebody who has a household income of 200000 It's not easy, but I think everybody should get the chance to have a good education, a great education, actually. I think it's interesting that you're... Um, version of resilience is really focused on education. Why Why yes, is that? I think education is the most important thing in the world, actually. Second to survival. You can't learn if you're dead. That's very true. Looking up the definition of resiliency, the physical property of a material that can return to its original shape or position after deformation that does not exceed its elastic limit. Uh, my name is Devin Chisholm. I uh, work at the University of New Mexico uh, studying Alzheimer's disease in the molecular genetics department. I am a mother of two. The limits of elasticity, is that what it said? Exactly. Do you think that there are human limits to that elasticity? I definitely think there are, but I think that humans have this amazing re- ability to recover before they reach that limit, right? I think that resiliency is a human trait. It's not just a, a trait that few people have. I think resiliency has everything to do with survival and growth. And I think all humans are striving for that. And all humans have that trait. You know, New Mexicans have that resiliency. They had their land taken, but then they maintained their family properties and reformed after being dismantled. My name is Minea Armijo. I am an instructor in the education department at CNM, and I'm a student at UNM in a graduate program in education. I'm a mom of two. For some reason, I feel that this idea of resilience, it's individualized to kind of put blame on the person that cannot sustain all this series of limitations and the pressure to do all this work in a way. And I think we need to remember that historically, we have not operated alone. And most societies have become successful because of their joint efforts. So I mean, this idea that we stand together in facing a pandemic, I think it's it's something to reflect on because we say it a lot, but we're not really embracing it. Some people 
can use resilience as this kind of like bootstrap. You can do it, we can get through it, but also in some ways it repeats these systems of oppression, like structures of oppression, of being resilient and working three jobs and being resilient and being finding healthcare when you don't have health insurance and being resilient and like having to take care of a, you know an, an elder and having to homeschool and having to work from home and but really what's failing is like all of these structures that should be supporting people but instead we've bandaged over everything plastered over it with this idea of you're resilient like even though you don't have all the things that you need to really thrive Right. Like there's definitely this pocket of our population that is expected to be resilient. And then there's another pocket of population that almost mandate people to be resilient, but they are exempt from the expectations of what resiliency means because they are almost perceived to be the lucky ones that are wealthy and so these expectations of resilience do not apply across the board so my name is peter jage mwangi i am a land year phd student at the university of new mexico studying language literacy and social cultural studies and i am from kenya when we talk about resiliency we talk about it is you know this very positive thing that we should all have and something that that we should all revere right but then i'm also thinking is it something is it a situation that we have created for people that they have no option but to be what we are calling a syrian i would not call that resiliency i would just call that survival it's going to distinguish between resiliency and survival because we can create some uh, inhumane conditions for people and when they are surviving we start saying oh those people are so resilient they are so humble you know those colonizing you know narratives that we have hand too often people who are comfortable in their place looking at people going through the struggles of life and saying oh those people those refugees are very resilient those women who have been oppressed they are so resilient they keep on moving despite whatever they are facing but should they be facing that to start with that's that's the question for no more normal i'm yasmin khan New Mexico has seen an increase in unexpected deaths during the pandemic, and suicide is included in those numbers. The acting deputy director at the Treatment and Programs Bureau within the state's Behavioral Health Services Division, Tiffany Wynn, joins me now. An Albuquerque Journal article that came out two months ago says that there was a jump in the number of unexpected deaths in the state during the pandemic. That can include suicide. Is it something your office has been working on? Yeah, it is. We work in partnership with the Department of Health, and the Department of Health tracks death by suicide. What our role is, is to work with providers to handle the Sentinel events, but also to track what's happening in the field and then offer resources and interventions to minimize death in that way. Mm-hmm. Is the state taking any extra measures at this time to kind of prevent suicides and overdoses? So there's a few things that we work on. So one is that we launched crisis counseling service for talk therapy that's available 24 hours a day as well. So we're looking to really reach out and say we understand that this time is critical. Anything that may have been resolved before is now likely going to come back. If you haven't had 
something trigger you before, you may have it trigger you now. And we want to make sure that you have people that can be available to you. Now, as we go along further into 2020, we're still going to be in uh, the second wave of the pandemic hasn't quite started. A lot of people are extremely anxious about the presidential and the national election, the general election coming up and a lot of the incendiary language and actions taking place around that. And then it's the general holiday season where some people tend to get down during that time. Do you expect kind of a bump in phone calls to these resources that you just mentioned? I do. I was a therapist for 16 years before coming to the state. And this period of time, the next six months is some of the hardest time of any calendar year for folks. And I think we will see a spike in calls. I think we'll see a spike in substance use. And I think we'll see a spike in at least suicidal ideation, if not actions taken around those thoughts. Mm. And we have an obligation as behavioral health providers to be available and be willing to respond. So let me ask you about native lands. On, On tribal lands, we've seen a disproportionate number of people be harmed by coronavirus. The the rates of Native people who die by suicide in New Mexico is pretty, pretty high. That's, again, according to the CDC. Are you all providing resources to tribes as they try to help people dealing with grief, loss, and anger? Yes, we are. So there's a few pieces. We released guidance on isolation, fear, grief, and loss in the beginning of April and got that out through our partner um, agencies within the Indian Health Services and IED. We also have an amazing prevention department within the Behavioral Health Services Division who partners a lot with Ricardo Cote. Again, these are like the behavioral health providers. They just work to, till there's no more time left ever. Mm-hmm. Um, they just released a coloring book for um, children that explains what's going on with COVID, the things that could be attached to it, grief and loss pieces. We also partner with other state agencies. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show and talking with me. She's Tiffany Wynn, Acting Deputy Director at the Treatment and Programs Bureau within the state's behavioral health services division. Thanks again, Tiffany. I really appreciate it. Thank you. For 50 years, the Agora Crisis Center at the University of New Mexico has been helping the youth, parents, and the entire community using compassion and understanding. Here with me now to talk about what types of situations they're seeing is Kyle Doherty. He is the Associate Director at Agora. Kyle, thanks for being with me. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. So New Mexico has one of the highest suicide rates in the country, and it's mm-hmm. September's Suicide Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. What What are some of the factors here that are making this so prevalent? Yeah, in New Mexico specifically, there are a lot of factors contributing to the high suicide rate. We're a really rural state, so that makes accessing any kind of resources pretty difficult. But we also have lots of vulnerable populations in New Mexico that are more at risk for suicide than others. We have a very large Native American community, and they have a much higher risk for suicide than your average American would. There's also a a gun culture in this state, and so access to lethal means can increase your risk of dying by suicide up to 10 times higher than if you didn't have access to a firearm. So those all contribute to the high rate here in New Mexico. And now how does the pandemic exacerbate those issues? Yeah, the pandemic makes things really difficult for people because we're more isolated. Mm -hmm. 
if you're not around people, you don't have any kind of social support anymore. So that isolation can just make any kind of issue that you're struggling with worse, be it a mental health issue or something else. Now, you partnered with the city of Albuquerque during the pandemic to create a homeless assistance helpline. What's available Mm -hmm. there? The idea behind that service is connecting anybody who is experiencing homelessness or may be at risk for experiencing homelessness with services that are available right here in Albuquerque. So you can call for somebody that you know, somebody that you see, or yourself, and our trained specialists can help connect you with the resources that you might need. Mm-hmm. I like that. We are facing more months of physical distancing. No one knows exactly when mm-hmm. that's going to be over. You know, this wasn't a crisis that just mm-hmm. came and went. I've got friends who are just realizing now, and here we are in September, that mm-hmm. this is going to be a long process of us being in this. In some ways, they're still down, but they've been able to accept that we're going to be in this. What are some tools that people can use to help them come to this acceptance? I think working in behavioral health care, something that we talk about a lot is self-care. And mm-hmm. I think sort of in the media, self-care is taken on this different connotation than what I view it as. Self-care really is just that. It's taking care of yourself. And that's something that we need to focus on now more than ever. An analogy that I heard recently is it's like we're trying to do everything we normally were. We've just got this 100-pound backpack on now while we're doing it. Yeah. And when people say self-care, they think of things like uh, bubble baths, I guess. And if that's your form of self-care, that's fantastic. But it doesn't always look like that. Sometimes self-care is just getting eight hours of sleep or drinking that glass of water. Mm -hmm. And finally, what do you want people who are facing depression during the pandemic to know? I really would like them to know that they're not alone in this, that there are places just like Agora where we're here for you and we want to listen to you and help you get through whatever you're going through. Yeah. Yeah. I want to thank you very much for being here. He's Kyle Doherty, Associate Director at Agora. Thanks again, Kyle. Thank you so much. The phone numbers for Agora are 505-277-3013, 866-HELP-1NM, and 800-273-TALK. Tara's going to close us out. After spending an hour on the phone with each of these experts, I felt refreshed and inspired. I can do this. I was excited about writing this article and sharing what I'd learned. And then it took me two weeks to start the article and another week to finish it, even though I wanted to write it. But now I could cut myself a little slack for taking so much longer than I might have a few months ago. I might have intellectually accepted back in March that the next two years or more are going to be nothing like normal and not even predictable in how they won't be normal. But cognitively recognizing and accepting that fact and emotionally incorporating that reality into everyday life aren't the same. Our new normal is always feeling a little off balance, like trying to stand in a dinghy on rough seas and not knowing when the storm will pass. But humans can get better at anything with practice. So at least I have some ideas now for working on my sea legs.
If you or someone you know could just use someone to talk to, check in with the New Mexico Warm Line at 1-855-4NM-7100. That's 466-7100. And if it's urgent or severe, contact the New Mexico Crisis and Access Line at 1-855-NM-CRISIS or 662-7474. The Agora Crisis Center, that line is 505-277-3013 or call 855-505-4505. Our web post will have more information for you. Just head to KUNM.org for more. Thank you to Yasmin Khan for contributing today, and thank you to Ty Bannerman and Nash Jones for helping out with the editing. Each week, our show posts feature a different artwork related to the theme. This week, artist Adri De La Cruz let us use their painting as an image for the show. Find it online at KUNM.org. Thanks to Jazz Tone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Olaud Records for providing music for the show. Kaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt produced some of the show's themes. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco. It's hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. For everyone here at Nomono, remember that the help you need is waiting for you. Reach out. Thank you for listening. <laughs>